father and son. I don't know son. whether it's a compliment or an insult. <laughs> I don't know. I'll take it. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm like, you're, is, is Remzo your kid? I'm like, I don't think so. It, it, you know, somebody actually also tried saying that Brian McWilliams was my father. <laughs> See? I don't know. Oh, my all, gosh. All these... My two dads? So progressive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody said so, Brian McWilliams. Dude. I'm way better looking than Brian. <laughs> I love it. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue color to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. I'm here with my real truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Bam! Well, hello. How you doing? I'm, I'm excited. So we had time change over here, which is something oh, yeah. that you have the luxury of no longer experiencing. I know. Because you're in Arizona, right? Yeah, it's kind of weird. And so yeah. we are now officially recording at the same time again. It's very yeah. fun. Yeah, Martian Outpost and Base One at the same time. This is pretty cool. It's like that one time when there's like some sort of galactic eclipse where our times overlap and we're in the same time zone now. But right. like, what's weird is is it kind of sucks for me. And I, that, hear me out. It, it's convenient. You're complaining? It, I can't. Well, I'm no. going to complain because <laughs> okay. I have to keep track of everyone else's time. Like, so if I talk to you or anyone in Indiana or, you know, New York or hell, Virginia. Oh, yeah. You're you know right. I mean? You still have to know it. You still I have, have to, to know it. I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. They fell back. Okay. So. Okay. You can complain. You can have that. So That's I'm always fair. kind of like, now I have to adjust for their time zones. So True, I, but you can do it because you are Johnny effing Rocket, yeah. I've been told many times. Yes. <laughs> I don't know who would say something like that, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's like, huh. so it's it's March and it is pouring rain today. And it's been pouring rain for the last three or four days. It's crazy. And uh, it's not even monsoon season. So apparently like through June or June timeframe is where Arizona gets the the largest amount of rain. However, last June, that didn't happen. There, there was no rain, nothing until like, no, it never, it never happened. I think like one day it rained. And this year I think is going to be just a lot of rain for Arizona. I just have a feeling. I have a gut. Oh, good. Feeling my gut. Feeling my gut. It was Fantastic. a real, Yeah, we have a really, really cool guest. You know, it's like a guest we haven't had before. I think we've had this guest on like, I think our first or second show here on Blast Off. It was the episode zero we did with Apollo, and then we had Remzo on episode two, I believe. It was, and it was episode I, two, yes. yeah. And then I fell in love, of course. Of course. Right. You can't, you can't lo- not love this guy. Remzo exactly. W. Martinez is a journalist, filmmaker, podcaster, and best-selling author from Virginia, hence why I made that reference. He currently works as a social media coordinator for the Washington Times. Okay, Rayleigh, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot, Raylene. Are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Renzo W. Martinez! We're sitting up, it's a rock and roll. We're getting right, we're about to go. Sweet little order, turn up all right. 
show, my brother. Johnny, Raylene, always great to be here. Thanks for having me back on. Oh, man, so it's it's really cool. So you were here with us on episode two of Blast Off. Now you're back on episode 66 of Blast Off. It's been a minute, but, man, it's... The triumphant return. Triumphant return. Yes. Well, here's the thing, man. You've been a good friend of the show, and you've been a good friend of Raylene and I's for a, quite a while. I mean, even before. I mean, you've been friends with me since the old Launchpad days. When I was the, the dark ages, the dark ages, yeah, it was a different, it was a different time, it was a different time, uh, but man, you're doing some cool stuff. You are doing the media coordinator for the Washington Times. What do you exactly do there, and what have you learned about politics since working for the Washington Times? Oh, the you know working working in media and working in politics is you know it's it's pretty similar in many ways. And I call it the Trinity of evil because it seems like everyone who fails to be successful in politics always goes into media. That's, <laughs> that's their default. Yeah, yeah. And then if you fail in media, the only other option is organized crime. And this space just isn't good enough for prison. So I'm hoping <laughs> the media thing works out, but I mean, it's been a, it, it's been a beautiful experience. I mean, for years I was a freelancer and uh, I only worked in a couple of newsrooms. I worked at the Newsbusters newsroom for the Media Research Center um, in Reston, Virginia, for a little bit. And then, uh, ironically, I was I was the Washington correspondent for a few California-based conservative websites. So getting to actually be back in a full-time newsroom again is really awesome. But what makes it even better for me, have, having been a commentary journalist for so long, is I'm the social media coordinator for the entire Washington Times. So I wow. I control and manage all the pages. But the beautiful thing is I'm specifically tasked to help promote our commentary section. That's what we're known for. We have a separate newsroom and then we have a conservative editorial. So that's been great. So every all the friends I've made, all the acquaintances and other colleagues I've encountered over the years working in nonprofits and advocacy groups, it, it's been a real great pleasure getting to reconnect with them again as I've brought them in, either coordinate to, you know, push out some of our people who are doing some phenomenal work, or even just trying to get in the conversation. Sure. I, I say conversation specifically because for a lot of the media, especially the cable outlets on the left and the right, often there seems to be a lot of narrative control. And that's the thing I tell people. I mean, mm -hmm. we are genuinely America's newspaper. We don't want to manipulate a narrative. What we want to do is we want to provide you know, the real news as well as hard hitting commentary to have a conversation and let people, you know, ultimately decide where they fall on issues. Mm -hmm. I think that's the true job of a journalist. So getting to be here in a different capacity other than just writing and reporting has really allowed me to, you know, really amplify a lot of great voices that wouldn't otherwise have a platform. So it's been a, it's going on a year now and I've had an absolute blast each, each and every day. Rock and roll. Yeah. You've been rocking it. And Washington Times is a great, great ability to share ideas out there and with a, a little more um, libertarian-friendly posts, to be honest oh, with you. Absolutely. And I mean, that was, it was one of those things growing up, you know, being a, a very outright libertarian, it was always one of those things where people didn't know where to really put you because the Republicans were like, oh, well, how, how do you feel about a lot of these social topics and right. you know the liberals were always like well you're just a republican that you know is okay of gay people and marijuana so for for the for the longest time when no one really knew what libertarians were it was always you know quite a precarious situation for me but as they were uh interviewing me and as i got to meet with all the editors what they do understand is that 
regardless as to whether how they feel about libertarians, what they knew specifically about me, which made me different from the other contenders, was the fact that I had been in, you know, I had one foot in the conservative advocacy movement and another foot in the libertarian one. Mm-hmm. And the thing that they know about a lot of millennials now, which are going to be the base readership in this next generation, is that the definition of conservative is different. Um, they want people to live their lives as they see fit, as long as they don't hurt people and take their stuff. They are a bit more, uh, you know, socially tolerant than maybe their parents or grandparents' generation when it comes to certain, you know, activities sure. that are harmful to really no one, unless you have a problem with it. So, I mean, they've been great about it, and there's nothing more beautiful than having, you know, very conservative former governor of Wisconsin. Napolitano, and then somebody from the Heritage Foundation, and then somebody from the Mises Institute, all sharing the same web page mm-hmm. yeah. and mm-hmm. having their bylines right next to each other. I think that's beautiful. That is cool. Um, you know, I've gotten to I've gotten to speak with uh, Governor Scott Walker that has a column with us every Thursday, and I mean, he he brings a great voice from you know a, a very Republican view, come being a former rural governor, and then we have folks that are you know purist Austrian economists that are finally getting to get in front of people that wouldn't typically be exposed to our ideas. Mm -hmm. So it's been a opportunity where they've been really cool about this and they're willing to really expand the school of thought and, you know, this free exchange of ideas that a lot of people, a lot of publications say they want to provide a platform for, but they don't ultimately do it. So we're actually pulling through on our promises and, you know, showing people this is how we want things to be. So we're going to be the example for every other outlet out there. Oh, you're a good talker. Yeah. I had a question though. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, that was perfect. You did great. But you've been really involved with YAL, Young Americans for Liberty. And you were talking about the young people. Can you talk to us about the importance of getting involved directly with the youth voters? And is there any hope for the Liberty message in a sea of young people getting Bernie tats? I mean, um, wow, I'm about to really rain on this parade. Ultimately, I like to think that I'm an optimist. You know, during my time with uh, Young Americans for Liberty, I worked in the Arlington office. I was Justin Grice's intern. And for anyone that knows Justin Grice, he's ultimately the person coordinating a lot of the on the ground activities for their PAC when at the door. And it was it was a great experience to travel, uh, you know, different states to actually go knock on doors and talk to the American voter about the things that really hit them at home. You know, the bread and butter issues, you know, will grandma get her Social Security check, the type of stuff that usually gets drowned out in the national conversation. But ultimately, I think if we've seen one thing um, through the rise of Bernie Sanders, it's that, you know, we're 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 in a culture war. Ultimately, Andrew Breitbart used to say that politics is downstream of culture. And I I think it's not just something that conservatives went ahead and ignored for the longest time until they no longer were considered culturally relevant. But I think libertarians I agree. have also kind of yep. seen that. And only now is it something that they value. So it does bother me when I see, you know, millions of Americans coming out for Bernie Sanders because they think that the government is going to pay off their student loans. It bothers me when I see people who are in their 40s working for minimum wage at McDonald's, hoping that an old socialist from Vermont who's never had a nine to five job is going to go ahead and provide them health care. Regardless as to whether or not you think voting is the mechanism to bring the most amount of change and prosperity in your life, 
Ultimately, you need to understand this. If you were poor when a Democrat was president, I'm sorry to tell you, you're probably going to be poor with a Republican as president. It's not something the government did to you. It's the lack of ability to change your own circumstances. And no one really wants to have that conversation with themselves. We're seeing that with the primary turnout for whether it was Focahontas or Bernie Sanders <laughs> or any of these other people promising them everything. I mean, it's just it, it's just absolutely ridiculous. So I think it's going to be something that you know, we're I don't think we're going to see the answer anytime soon. You know, I equate it to Star Wars. Yeah, the Jedi lost the Clone Wars, but ultimately good comes out on top even if it's a few generations from now. So I'm hoping that all the work we put in today you know, we might not see the results now. We might not even see it in our lifetimes, but I'm hoping that it paves an opportunity for, you know, smart and talented, actionable people to do great things in the future. Great answer, man. Great answer. Hey, so, um, so we're screwed. I yeah, way. yeah, I totally did. <laughs> yeah. Agree. We're f- dude. So like, I know, I know that you're here to talk about your new book. Um, but I also, before we talk about that, what's your thoughts on the Epoch Times? There's this new independent newspaper. Maybe it's been around for a while, but they've been really pushing hard in their YouTube advertisements. And my brother subscribes to it, and I have actually gotten a few issues from him just to kind of peruse through it. What's your thoughts on Epoch Times? I I don't really have a firm opinion of them because, I mean, they're not necessarily new but they have done a remarkable job at branding themselves. And to give them some credit, they're doing what a lot of main media outlets, I'm specifically talking like, you know, the Foxes, the CNNs of the world. I mean, they're really good when it comes to creating very viral digital content. I don't know much about them. I've had the pleasure of meeting some of their reporters, some of the producers. They're very kind people. I think they do uh, some good reporting. I'm just very hesitant of anything that's, indirectly or directly related to the Chinese sphere of influence. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think if I do my homework a little bit more, I'd have a better opinion for you. But, uh, you know, ultimately everyone has to decide whether or not they trust and can verify the information that any outlet is giving them, especially, you know, an outlet that really has come out from, you know, around the bench and onto the field, so to speak. Right on, man. Nice. So let's talk about your book right now. Yeah. You have a that's new book that's coming it. out and it's called How to Succeed in Politics. Well, it's been out for a while. It's it's actually out today. Yeah. Yeah. So, so How to Succeed yeah. in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. Now, I'm going to tell you, I read this book and it is fantastic. And I really, you know, at first I was just thinking, I know Remzo, you know, he's a good guy. I love hanging out with him. But he read it, you know, wrote a book, whatever, you know. And I read it, you know, and I'm like, dude, this is really, really good. I love the characters. Mm-hmm. I love the the plots. The I just love the the main characters in this book. Can you tell people about your new book, what you're trying yeah. to do with the book, and how's the book doing? Absolutely. So with um with my first book that came out in 2018, Stay Away from the Libertarians, it gave me an opportunity to go ahead and actually talk about the history of the modern libertarian movement. But the thing I realized from that was the, that, that book, you know, it did fantastic. It became a bestseller. It brought out independents, conservatives, uh, some civil libertarian Democrats, but it was, you know, it wasn't really doing what I wanted to do. It was good amongst the people that would have liked it, even if it sucked. Mm-hmm. I like to say mm-hmm. But I I wanted people that would have typically never thought about libertarians or didn't really know what libertarians were. I wanted it to be more as something that 
those folks can pick up. And it has done that to a certain degree. But I did realize that, you know, for a lot of people, they were going to be alienated by the title and the content <laughs> itself. So what I wanted to do was I didn't want to write a book coming from a libertarian viewpoint or Republican viewpoint or what have you. I wanted to write a book for all Americans that don't think everything is okay. And just right there, that statement is something I think everybody can agree on, right. no matter where you sure. are in the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the story is about two people that are separated by time. Mm -hmm. One is a political consultant working in the post-Trump era, trying to figure out you know, how far he's willing to go to get what he wants, which is ultimately a cushy staffer job in D.C., and the other takes place almost 50 years prior in rural Alabama. And it's actually a, a real-life individual, Governor George C. Wallace. So basically, by following the stories of these two people, what I wanted to do is craft a picture of how politics really work, You know, how, how the pie is really made, so to speak, and let people know, listen, this isn't a party issue. This isn't an ideological issue even. Mm. It's a battle of people that want to have more control over your life than you have. That's right. And that's a very scary thing because ultimately it doesn't even come down to the issues you care about. It comes down to Power. people manipulating. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it comes down to people manipulating your your fears and everything else. So what I wanted to do was write a book that could really appeal to everybody. So as an equal opportunity hater, I go after Republicans. I go after Democrats in this book. I go after everybody because ultimately, um, you know, the, the politics is – I call it the best worst thing that happened to my life. The best worst thing ever because eventually, you know, I met a lot of friends. I had a lot of opportunities through it. I wouldn't be here in media if I didn't start out in politics. But politics was something that, you know, if I had stayed in it any longer, my life would be 20 million times more miserable than it had been during sure. the worst days. So I wanted to tell people a story in a way which – showed them, you know, somewhat of an exaggerated spin on things, but also tie in real events so people know that sometimes reality can be so much scarier than fiction. That's true. And that's what I tried to do. And so far, I mean, everyone that's read it, uh, you know, whether you love Trump or hate Trump, I've had people on both sides say they love the book. I've had people say that this book has really made them, you know, think about things that they wouldn't otherwise have. And the thing that I know, and this is how I know that despite the fact that, you know, sometimes sales are really good, sometimes sales are really poor, I have not met a single person that didn't read it all the way through and didn't have their own take on the book that was uniquely theirs. And I think when you can make somebody think that and when every reader has come out of it with some similarities, but with a whole unique spin on the topic themselves, mm -hmm. that's how, you know, you didn't only really make them think, but you made them feel in a different way. And I think that's the job of a writer, essentially. Sure. Yeah. Lovely. So, yeah, I was really impressed with the the dialogue and the parallel stories, the way they were weaved together. It was it was done flawlessly. Yeah, lots of cocaine. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're the so, characters, not me. <laughs> yes, that is true. So uh, because of when I read this book, I was really impressed and I really liked um, the way that faith was talked about and stuff like that. For me, I, I feel like that's really important to me as a as a guiding stone in the political sphere. So, you know, now that I've been doing this podcast and, uh, you know, knowing a lot more people in the political world itself, it's been really interesting because I know I would never run for office, like clearly ever. But 
when I was realizing like heavy hitters in our industry are, were afraid of sharing their personal opinion about like certain conspiracies because of how they would look or that when I had to be careful of sharing my opinion of a candidate. Bush totally did 9-11. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a little late, but good job. And um, so he's coming out of so, the closet. He's now making a statement. <laughs> Remzo so, is now making a statement. All right. yeah. So it's, Sorry, it's really Andy. hard. Everybody's fr- you're friends with everybody, but if you say something that is true to you for you, then you're going to piss off a lot of people and you have enemies and it's like this thing. And I really had to investigate what my threshold for being honest and being quiet was, right? So I was just wondering when the first time that you ever had to question yourself, your words or actions when you were doing the political stuff and how did that make you feel? First off, th- thank you so much for for that view of it because that was something I really wanted people to take away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, not once did you mention, you know, libertarian politics specifically. Mm-hmm. You didn't mention one specific candidate or something. We're, mm-hmm. we're talking about a whole field of people that ultimately think that they have a better answer than somebody else. And, and that's neither good nor bad. That's just the nature of politics. Right. But the thing that really was the, the turning point for my life was when I began to do things on behalf of people that didn't care about me, mm-hmm. on behalf of people that didn't care about others, on behalf of people that were willing to win at all costs and I told myself, this is just how it is. And you go numb to it for a while. Yeah. You know, I, I wor- I've worked for some phenomenal people. I mean, I, I worked for some people who I really consider family to a certain degree, but there's always one or two individuals that pop up in my mind that really kind of soiled the whole experience for me. And these are people that I believed in at one point. Yes. What, what changed it for me was when I was willing to ignore explicitly wrong behavior. Yes. And I I do strongly believe that you start to become the people you surround yourself with. And I'll tell you a story. This isn't something that made it in the book at all. This is actually a true story. But I was managing a city council race uh, back in 2018. And um, my candidate and I entered really, really late in the race. We were asked by the local Republican Party. And this was funny because me and this candidate just two years prior, ran an independent race against an incumbent Republican. And uh, that was that was all types of fun. So basically, the same people <laughs> right. that were calling us basically Hitler, uh, two years later, were crawling to us saying that we were the only hope to obtain a seat that was open. And um, that should have been the first sign that when the mm-hmm. people who trash you then suddenly sure. say you're their last hope. But we're trying to figure out, okay, we we need to either pay a bunch of people to go out and collect signatures to get this guy on the ballot, or we just need to start at like 5 a.m. and bug people through midnight. And literally, this one person who was the chairman of the local Republican county said, hey, what if you have the old ballots from when he ran? What if you have the old petitions from when he ran a few years ago? What if we just take all those names and put it on the new one? Hey, you know what? That was in the book. (gasps) That was in the book. That was? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, it yeah. was so in the talk, book. I do talk about, and I wanted to no slap the shit out of that. Yeah. So, no, so we obviously know a okay, lot yeah, was so, edited out no. from the final cut. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, I actually remember it's towards the end yeah, of the book. So yeah. you, you caught me, Johnny. But this basically what happened was, I, okay. So I'll, I'll bring the parallel. So slight spoiler. So in real life, I basically just told this person one that's illegal 
two, that's stupid. Three, we're not doing it. Mm -hmm. In the book, I called him a and I fired him. That's right. Which is what was going in my head in reality. Mm -hmm. But it was in that moment when I realized, holy like, who have I surrounded myself with? Mm -hmm. yes. No, dude, and that's a slippery slope. And and like like I said, even like you are guilty because you, you become, you know, I think this happens to everybody. I mean, if every day I was hanging out with criminals, right? Let's just say that is all I knew, right? People who steal, people who cheat, people who hurt people. I would somehow find a way to justify it in my own mind that that's okay. If you yeah. lay down with dogs, you're going to get yeah, that's fleas. right. That's so what my you, grandma always said. That's true, but I think that happens to everybody. You know what I mean? I, I don't yeah. care. You know what I mean, maybe you have your your religion, and maybe there's the buffer there. Maybe some people are stronger because they have a, a stronger moral compass. But well, I mean, my my lines used to be this. My my lines, and this is the worst part about me during this period. Like my standards were slowly disappearing. It used yeah. to be I need someone that stands with me 100% ideologically. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's not going to happen. So I'm going to meet someone that meets me halfway and is a good person. Okay, now I'm going to meet somebody that meets me halfway and I don't care how, how their ethics are. Okay, now I'm just working because I need the money and money will make you do a lot of stupid things. Okay, now I'm just hoping that they'll pay me on time and they won't ask me to commit an actual crime. Right. The moment they asked me to literally go out and commit a felony, that was when I was like, holy I need a way out. Right. Yeah. Now, I mean, it can happen, man. And one, one more thing about your book. Like you said, the book is split in the kind of two stories going on. One's in the present time, one's in the past. And I'm sorry to say this. I, I know I've talked about this book to you in depth, but it is about Governor Walls, George C. Walls. And the thing I love about that character is uh, I, 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 I find the history fascinating behind the guy. Me too. And the guy was, I mean, he was an evil. <laughs> he was. But oh, you absolutely. understand you kind of start having sympathy for him. And I liked how you did that with him. It shows that he's evil, but then you just see glimpses of kindness or a kind gesture. And you're just like, I want to hate him, but there's that good thing about him that he did. And, you know, again, I would never have voted for the man. But then in a, in a weird way, he starts talking certain things, you know, that were like, hmm, that's kind of libertarian or, hey, that's kind of libertarian. And it makes you have this really weird relationship with that character. And I think the, the the character development you created when you were, you know, you were kind of improvising with George Wallace a little bit, but the kind of stuff you a did. A little bit, but it captured it a did. really great feel. And I feel like I kind of know him so much better. Yeah, yeah, totally. I absolutely it, do. It, it's really perverse in a way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because like there, there was an experiment done. I think it was done by Stanford university a few years ago and it was dealing with people's uh, prejudices. So, you know, they, they got, they got, they got like a focus group and they asked them like, what do you think of racists? And everyone's like, Oh, I hate them. Okay. What do you think of uh, Martin Luther King? Oh, we all love him. And then what they do is they bring in this painting. It's of like a beautiful city and it's, you know, just, a, it's like something you had seen in a dentist's office. Okay. It's not the best piece of art you've ever seen. <laughs> not that but great, it's but like, yeah, no, it's, yeah it's, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt your eyes, but it's okay. Right. It's, it's a dentist's office right. painting. Right. And they ask people what they think about it. And some people are like, oh, it's really nice. Some people are like, oh, it's really talented. Oh, it's really beautiful. And then the focus group moderator is like, you just complimented the works of Adolf Hitler. Oh. And everybody, suddenly their view of the painting starts changing. Oh, mm. it's cheap. Oh, it's bad. Oh, I hate it because I hate Hitler. It's one of those moments where you realize that underneath 
every person is a degree of humanity that shows itself in odd times. Sure. If, for example, when that painting was done, Hitler hadn't even you know been drafted into World War One yet. So this is before he becomes the Adolf Hitler we know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that that's one of those things where it's just really kind of weird because it's like, how can someone who's full of so much evil and rage and hate be capable of doing something which is objectively beautiful? Right. That was the really weird thing about Wallace because originally of this whole book, I was gonna actually it was one it was gonna be non it was gonna be nonfiction. I was going to actually tell stories. Each chapter was going to be about a different politician. Some people mm-hmm. I worked with, some people are done, uh, through interviews of other people. So it was going to be kind of like, you know, a, a profiles and corruption type of thing. But I, I wanted to include Wallace in there because he's just like the quintessential American bad guy. Mm-hmm. Everybody universally hates him. So I, I start doing a chapter on George Wallace. And for some weird reason, I went through my favorite source for information, YouTube, and I found a video <laughs> of him in 1972, 73. This must have been. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's in the wheelchair. And he's talking about somebody from, I think, CBS is asking about Arthur Bremer. Arthur Bremer is the man that shot him in Laurel, Maryland and put him in the wheelchair. And this is about a year, year and a half after that. And somebody's like, what do you think of Arthur Bremer? And here I am. I'm expecting, oh, Wallace is about to say, oh, guy and all this stuff. <laughs> look what he did to my life. No, he does something that was completely out of left field. He looks at the reporter and he says, I don't feel anything but forgiveness for Arthur Bremer. I pray for Arthur Bremer. And here I am watching this. And I'm like, what the f- did he just say? Yeah. And it just shocked the living. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that opened up the whole floodgates from there. At that point, I was like, I don't think I know anything about this man. And I think, you know, when we learn about Wallace in, in schools, we only really follow him up until like 1964. I mean, after the whole Selma civil rights incident. And then we all after bail. That, yeah. Yeah, we all bail. I think his life after 1964, after the civil rights era, is the most interesting political story of the 20th century. Because in many ways, I think Wallace is really a Shakespearean tragedy. In many yeah. ways. And that's what I wanted people to see. It's like, yeah, this person's full of so much evil, but he's also full of so many other things that when you learn about it, it makes you really even question yourself. It's like, through what lens do other people see me? It has to happen. I mean, let's just in in literary references, you you have these ideas of these big people, but all the best works of movies and books will depict the villain as somebody that we can understand that if a couple things went a little differently, we would have gone that way too. That's so true. That's what makes a good villain. That's right. And so, and I'm a people scientist, so I'm an expert on this, obviously. So very good Mm -hmm. job, Remzo, because you're correct that any one of us with traumatized a certain way and a way that we would, I mean, we have the trauma that we all have for a reason because we can handle it and we're okay. But there's some other things happen to those people and it's something switches off. And if somebody was so greedy for power, because he talks about that, he talks about how power is the most important thing. And people that feel that way are people that were heavily abused. Absolutely. Something extremely, extremely unsettling and scary happened to them at an early age. So they felt like if they were not in complete control, then then they would be safe if they if they 
work. That's right. Yeah. That That's absolutely like that. So that guy obviously had a lot of yeah. bad things happen to him. Hey, Raylene, make sure you check out America's fastest growing number one pro-liberty radio program, Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live is on how many nights per week? Seven nights per week. And 190 plus radio stations coast to coast. And it's pro-liberty every issue, every time. So check out freetalklive.com. Again, that's freetalklive.com. Anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket. Always launching ideas. We'll be right back with Remzo Martinez talking about his book, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. We'll be right back. Rock and roll. Hey, Johnny, what's up? Not so good. I haven't had any coffee this morning, and I ran out of my supply, and we just passed the last habitable planet in the Mesian sector. Oh, man. Wait, you have your own secret stash of coffee? What is it, a special blend or something? It's not a secret stash. I just have standards, okay? Oh, okay. Wait, what are they? Independence. What? Independence. Hmm, okay. Independence, my coffee is fearlessly independent. My coffee has no board members, no bank loans, no bullshit. Just blood, sweat, and tears, and no goddamn rulers. <laughs> well, I can always get behind independence, you know that, but it just seems a little over the top. It's just coffee. So, are you saying that you like your coffee like our messaging, which is bold? Damn, Raylene, my coffee is my lifeblood. This coffee <laughs> believes that human beings are perfectly capable of rational self government, and I can't fly this fucking ship without okay, it. Okay, okay, calm down. Uh, oh, look, ground control's coming by. Oh, and Ben has coffee with him. Hey guys, Ground Control here. I just checked out anarchocoffee.com and they're having a special 10% off promotional discount for Blastoff supporters. On top of that, supporters get 15% off on our Blastoff brew. Anarcho Coffee will deliver to you no matter where you are in the galaxy. You guys want some? Here you go, Johnny. I heard this coffee is amazing. <sighs> okay, all right. This is the best coffee I have ever had. Wait, what about your special blend? I think I just found it. Wow. Well, and it says right here that Anarcho Coffee is organically farmed, it's ethically sourced, and roast to order. And it's not stored in some dirty warehouse for six months before you get it. It's fresh, it's rich, and it's independent. <laughs> Just like you wanted. And they take Bitcoin, too. Well, make sure you check out anarchocoffee.com forward slash blastoff. Again, that's anarchocoffee.com forward slash blastoff. It's self-governed caffeine. It is great. We're talking to the great one and only Mr. Remzo W. Martinez. Some people may have said he is also my child. So give it up for Remzo Martinez. Oh, I don't son. know whether it's a compliment or an insult. I don't know. I'll take it. I have no idea. I'm like, is, is Remzo your kid? I'm like, I don't think so. You, you know, somebody actually also tried saying that Brian McWilliams was my father. Yeah, see? I don't know. Oh my all, gosh, all these... my two dads, so progressive. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Somebody said so, Brian McWilliams, dude. I'm way better looking. <laughs> I love it. That you are, Renzo. That you are. All right, man. 
what we do here on the second segment. It's called Rocket Fire. What we do on Rocket Fire, sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically or philosophically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Remzo, my friend, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? Let's do it. Question one. Is not voting a political statement and why? Absolutely. I mean, for every action, there's an equal or opposite action. Not voting, you know, ultimately it comes down to this. If you care about something, you're going to do it. If you don't care about something, you're not going to do it. So whether or not you're part of the libertarian pact that believes that voting is violence or you believe that's the only way to go ahead and make any change in government, if you vote or you don't vote, that itself is an action. Bam. Question two. It is sometimes claimed that there is little difference between nationalism and patriotism. What is your opinion? I, I, I disagree with that, primarily because of this. Nationalism follows a worldview mentality that you are inherently better than other people because of where you were born. And that creates this stigma that nothing that your you know, government does can be wrong, that nothing that your people do is wrong because you're inherently greater. Patriotism means the love of community, the love of idea, the love of culture. If you stand up for that, you're standing up inherently for the individual right to enjoy those um, you know, aspects of your life, even when that means calling out your government for doing something wrong. So no, I think that nationalism and patriotism are two different things. I agree with you, man. Question three. Are you surprised? <laughs> are you surprised that Facebook shared your personal data with others? And didn't you kind of agree to that when you signed up? Yeah, that's the worst part about it. What it shows is that me and uh, a few billion other people like me don't like to read long terms of agreement. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised. Hey, I mean, here's the thing. When the product is free, you are the product. That's right. Mm. That's right, man. Question four. Are political phenomena like Trumpism, Bernie bros, and Brexiteers really an example of populism? Yes, because what we're dealing with are two people that stand outside the normal party system, the normal Democrat and Republican system. And what they're really going are for people that don't have a fixed ideology, but are more issues based. And they're not even issues that are what we would consider mainstream issues. They're issues that really only you know, populate because it's a popular conversation. I don't really know how a bunch of Mexicans coming from Mexico really affects people in Montana. But apparently something that wouldn't necessarily affect somebody becomes the big thing that they worry about. In a nation where we have billions of dollars in debt, where we're in perpetual war, where we have the highest incarceration state in the world. Uh, I'm sorry, second only to Russia. That's right. Second That's correct. To that Russia. is correct. Uh, we, we have arguments about what bathrooms people can use or whether or not you believe <laughs> yeah. in global warming. So it becomes more of a virtue signaling pissing contest than anything normal. Uh, so yeah, I would say that what we have are two people that know how to really talk the talk of culture, which I'm going back to all the time. And uh, yeah, they're, they're great examples of it. Right on, man. Question five. How do you think the outcome of the upcoming election will affect the direction of federal research and federal funding? It won't. You know, everyone always says, like, term limit the politicians, but I think we need to, like, term limit the bureaucrats because nobody elected those bastards. I agree. They stay forever. And they, they always give each other, you know. And I'm going to give myself a raise and the day off. I'm going to take the day off and give myself a raise. I mean, this is what they do. And they create. That's, I mean, that's a bipartisan thing right there. Yeah, it's 
that. Question six. Why is Tulsi Gabbard so popular with some members of the Libertarian Party? Listen, man, she's not going to win the White House, but she's winning America's heart. That's why. Okay. Question seven. What important policy area doesn't get enough attention? Education, because it's really hard to talk about complex issues when you're dealing with a lot of stupid people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that your final answer? Well, also, public schools are universally part of the civil religion. I mean, you can't say anything negative about public school teachers because then everyone, both both Republicans and Democrats, they get super, um, you know, sensitive about it. It's like arguing with a possum that's in a trash can. It's like, <laughs> stay away from my trash. And it's like, you, you can get, have all of it's it. It's like arguing with a possum in a garbage can. <laughs> okay. All right. It is. Ah. Uh, all right, man. Question eight. Do comments matter? How does online discussions affect people's political participation or does it? It doesn't because those people, all they do is they do nothing. Commenting, liking, sharing. It does nothing. The thing that wanted me to like throat punch a person was when I was on Twitter a few weeks ago and I get to see, well, I, I'm on it every day because of my job, but every day I get to see the deterioration of illiterate America online. But I saw this person, he said he's a virtual political activist because he manages some Facebook groups. And immediately I wanted to travel to his house and throat punch him in front of his mother because ultimately it does nothing. It means nothing. It is nothing. When he dies, nobody will remember him. <clears throat> Interesting. Question nine. If we eat cows... Why not dogs, dolphins, or babies? Why do we draw the line at pigs, chicken, and fish, and cows in our culture? Babies. I just thought it was funny. One, because cannibalism is just freaking <laughs> I'm sick. Kidding. When it comes to it was to a the, joke. When it it was comes, a joke. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe we should have a conversation about that. Yeah, the ethics I'm of joking. baby eating. I'm sorry. <laughs> I joined you guys on your rocket fire. Thank you for for letting me jump in. <laughs> Um, I, I Question mean, nine. <laughs> if we eat cows, why not dogs and dolphins? Why do we draw the lines at pigs, fish, chicken, cows in our culture? Wait, wait, we don't <laughs> eat dolphins? We should. I would eat them. Sharks. Thanks for all the fish. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying. I would <laughs> dolphin. Okay, there's my answer. I'm willing to eat dolphins. Let's see. But why do we draw the line there? Why? I, I, I think we need to have a discussion on dolphins. <laughs> why not? Then we won't. I mean, genuinely. And then they would like, actually go like when we're actually like catching tuna and we're getting dolphins, we could throw that in the mix too. And then. Okay. If, if we're catching dolphins <laughs> and they're in the tuna nets, I don't see anything wrong with it personally. I, I still eat tuna out of a can. I love that. But, but let me just say that aren't dolphins actually more intelligent than people supposedly? If anything, that, that gives us more of a That's reason. more of mega threes, right? How'd they we get in the net? Yeah. I mean, we need to like assert our dominance. Yes. As okay, a species. I see how it goes. This is why I'm all for developing the rainforest. Mm -hmm. That's right. Question 10. Is politics <laughs> really, no, is politics really devil worship, Ramzo? Absolutely. Anything that takes you away from a genuine faith is absolutely heretical. Uh -huh. Anyway, so that's why I can fire. Give it up for Ramzo W. Martinez, man. That was a good one. And it was funny. I I really enjoyed your answers. I do have something we, to we say. We have to follow up on the dolphin eating later. Well, I thought you were saying you're going to follow up on the babies one because that was weird. I, you know, I just thought babies was kind of funny because why do we? You know, cultures are weird. Shock value. Yeah, shock value. Yeah, I mean.
If you're killing them, you can eat them, right? Yeah. Aren't you supposed to eat what you kill? Okay, anyway. uh, I I was going to say. Oh, God, really? um, Jesus. Isn't that like (laughs) traditional hunting rules? This is just. Real fast. I was watching an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, and he had a Chuck Palunak, or however you pronounce his name. Oh, Chuck Palunak is crazy. Fight Club author. Yeah, so he wrote Fight Club, and he was talking about censorship. And there was a part where he was talking about the film Fight Club. And there's a scene where Tyler and uh, what's her name have sex. And they were. The, the, there was a problem between the script writers and the studio because originally it was going, to, she was going to say after uh, her and Tyler had sex, I want to have your baby. I hope I'm pregnant. I want to have your baby. But what Chuck said originally was, I hope I'm pregnant so I can have your abortion. And the studio didn't want to have that. So what they made her say was, wow, I haven't been fucked that hard since grade school to which the studio executives were like, can we go back to the abortion? Wow. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So before we go to commercial, Remzo, I do want to say that one of any time that I get interviewed and people ask me what made me an AMCAP or what made me a voluntarist or an anarchist, I always tell them Facebook comments because (laughs) so I want you to know that Facebook comments were what took me from not a very good libertarian to a principled libertarian all the way to anarchist. Absolutely Facebook comments. I think it was conversations, I got to see every asshole out there talking, every horrible comment, every dead baby discussion. I got every one of them. And you know what? Here I am. Oh, no, it's not true. Anyways, it's Johnny Rocket and Raylene Lightheart talking to Mr. Remzo W. Martinez and we will talk about his new book, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship, right after this break. So stick around, rock and roll. Johnny Rocket, thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you, Remzo, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come here on this uh, rinky-dink intergalactic libertarian radio show. And again, man, we really appreciate it. So, Raylene, take it away. Oh, so can I ask a question first? Go ahead. Can I break protocol? I have a question for Raylene because, Johnny, you and I are going to discuss this later. You and I have been working on a secret undercover classified project. That's right. Raylene, this is my favorite question to ask everybody. And this is why I love doing book signings, even when I barely sell any books, because I get to talk to people, especially folks that bring their books to me so so I can sign them. Okay. But when you read this book, what's the one moment, what's the one scene in the book that just has stayed in your mind whenever someone asks you, what's your favorite part of it? What was the one scene where you're just like, "That, that was worth the entire book itself? I never thought about it. Let's see, favorite scene. I could tell you my favorite scene <laughs> if you want me to jump. Yeah, I could jump in. Go ahead. But my ahead. favorite scene was when we did when you had your character with the demons. Or actually, my favorite scene was when Satan, the Satan, Wait, like Satan the Nixon showed up Satan? in the bathroom. Because <laughs> I'm like, where the f- did this come from, bro? Where 
where did it come from? And I, I don't know. I thought that was probably cool. And then um, I really liked any time Satan Nixon came into the story. And again, well, so it, yeah, it's well, I was actually had a question for you about that, which was, do you think that all politicos see Satan Nixon or is it uh, image uh, specific to each person? I think it's image specific to each person. I mean, art at the beginning of the book, art is the, the fictional protagonist in our day and age. At the beginning of the book, he tells you he's a he's a Republican that likes Robert F. Kennedy. So the exact opposite of RFK had to be probably the most corrupt person in American politics at that time who was other than maybe LBJ, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Nixon. So I, I think I really for him, yeah. I do like the scene where he was talking about Nixon when he was going to AA and, and why, he, why he chose Nixon to embody Satan, actually. So I thought that was really funny, the rebellion against the parents and things like that. And I don't know what my specific favorite part was, but I, I oh, was well, he, he, really... Here, let, here let, me, let me go ahead and rephrase this. What was the most surprising fact about Wallace you picked up? I didn't know that he was... The most surprising fact was actually the beginning when he was a judge. So that shocked me. I did not know that. That that is literally what freaks people out. Is that everybody that. says that, that that shocked me? And then I wondered, was that who he really was? See, I went, okay, so can I just tell you this? This is my favorite thing about the book is that when I read this book, I'm very into the Enneagram. I don't know if you know anything about this. It's a personality kind of thing. It's not exactly a test. It's more like a rubric for why we have what we do with our trauma and what our egos, like uh, the self-defense mechanisms that we build. Okay. When I talked about him being a bad guy. So this is legitimately my favorite is that I think Wallace is an Enneagram eight, which is what my Enneagram type is. Okay. Huh. So I like, this is actually very personal. So <laughs> like, just to let you know. So oh, th this is why I love asking this question because okay, I get responses so, that I never predicted. Okay. So I can see all of the behavioral patterns and I think I understand him. Now, I did something very different um, for me. I worked very, very, very hard to maintain a connection with my creator and to hold on to my innocence. But other people don't always go that way. And they get very my way or the highway. You're either with me or you're against me and anything to win. And every battle is a, ba everything is a battle and every battle must be won. That's an Enneagram 8 thing. Okay. And I definitely felt that in him. Now, when I found that he was working to help people as a judge and that he specifically treated people of color with so much respect, I do think that's an eight quality. They are very protective of the underdog and people that cannot help themselves. That's something that they naturally do. And then what the unhealthier, or as if they're very unhealthy, they're less like that, but the healthier they get, the more they lean into their vulnerability and become softer and connected with human beings, uh, with other souls and, and more emotional and more, more loving. And that's through growth. There's one out of nine, or you're one out of nine types, every person is, but that's kind of something that I, I see like Darth Vader, I, as a child, I always had a very deep connection with because I felt like I could be Darth Vader. Does that make sense? I, I totally see that. That's that's really interesting. And, and you know, I can't piggyback off of that. That was the thing, like the early years of Wallace was probably the part of the book where I was like, I don't know if people are going to buy this <sighs> because he, I mean, he grew up a poor white person amongst 
That's poor right. black people. And if you lived in the South, you know that poor mm-hmm. whites, you know, poor whites are seen as no different than poor black people. That's true. Yeah. They, That's true. They see more camaraderie with each other than poor white people, middle class white people. That's correct. And that, that, is was correct. The, that was the crazy thing about him. And when he's a judge and he's, you know, often ruling in favor of a lot of black attorneys when mm-hmm. he ran for governor the first time and was endorsed by the NAACP, that was the most heartbreaking part of it. Because what we're seeing now is somebody that could have done a lot of good if mm-hmm. things had gone his way. You know what? And here's the thing. We are one thing away from I mean, everyone is one bad decision away from total destruction. You well, know what okay, I mean? Like, so if- I, I, I could say that you're correct that every moment is a choice, Johnny. I love you. Every moment is a choice. But I'm here to tell you right now that it is never too late and that anything that's been done can be undone on some level and you sure. can rectify all timelines. Absolutely. Time I'm not, does not exist. No, no, I, I, I get you. Yeah. But what I'm also saying is that you know, you could lose your career. You could lose, yes. you could go to jail. Yes. You could do all these things, but one thing could you. And if, if one thing you, I'm, I'm not, I'm just saying like, I could like go out one night, hang out with people, have one drink too many, get in a car and get pulled over for a tail yeah, light. You're right. And I'm in jail now. Right. And I do think that that wrecked him. I think he was a young idealist and he was strong and a powerful leader and he did so well and he was doing the right thing. But no, then but he, he used and the, then I think he felt betrayed. He, he used the state. True. And this is my problem with Wallace is he was a sociopath. I don't maybe he had good intentions, <laughs> but he was a sociopath. But OK, I do have to also say that you are correct about judges actually being a position of power that many clinical narcissists with narcissistic personality disorder, which many real true narcissists are either socio or psychopaths, they have psychopathy, and they are drawn to the job of a judge. So that was actually a question I was kind of struggling with. I was going to ask you, Remzo, do you think that he was legitimately that good of a person or was that his game thinking that he had an in or forging a way for himself? I, I genuinely like here, here's the thing about Wallace. And I mean, I had a ton of questions as I was researching him and I researched this guy for like six to eight months. And at the end of the book, like literally when I hit print, I was, I was still asking myself questions about him because I don't think anybody really knows my personal feeling and i'm not saying this is a definite opinion on this but there's something about being in the minority of a popular stance that i think shows more virtue than just going along to get along and wallace was definitely in the minority of judges and state level Mm -hmm. legislators that was actually writing laws and making decisions to actually benefit poor blacks and poor whites in Alabama. So I will say that's probably a bit more true than he just acted like that because he thought it would help him. He does he does identify very early on that blacks in Alabama and throughout the South, there's going to be an era post Jim Crow in his lifetime. And he did realize that those people are going to vote. But here, here's yeah. the crazy thing. As governor, he was elected almost entirely by a black majority in Alabama every time he ran. 
because mm-hmm. he was putting stuff towards welfare programs. He was putting stuff towards tech and vocational schools. He was putting stuff towards black communities. He was fixing the roads. He didn't treat them as bad as everyone assumes he treats them. He did some very, yeah, that was crazy. That was the biggest surprise for me. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so, like, for every good thing he did, he does something which is just like, oh, man, I think I like, I think I like okay. where, where you're going with this. Oh, you're a And that's like, oh, you, you have a moment of, of good in you. And it's like, oh, you. No, but, but I think it was, yeah. I think it was more your writing style that did that, right? So I would say Wallace is a I wouldn't like the guy. I, I think he's a I do agree. Ass. And I think he, you know, what was weird, though, is near the end, you know, of, you know, when he actually was running for president, he took a lot of Barry Goldwater's idea of, you know, let's, let's, you know, get the federal government out of things, right, which no one talks about. He was actually wanting to, you know, I don't believe in states having rights, but state powers, right? And, you know, kind of decentralizing the state, which was appealing to me in the book, which well, I was like, man, that's kind of cool. And, you know, there were some things that he was starting to say that was like, okay, cool. And then you see the relationships and the bond with his wife at Lurleen and how they had this weird connection and how they had a distant relationship. Mm-hmm. But yet he was very loving to her. They had this understood love. And I thought that was kind of the most I think impressive. He was protective of her. That was the most impressive thing about Wallace, I think, to me, was Lurleen and how he had this deep connection with her. It wasn't like some whirlwind, you know, he had a deep love, but not a romantic love with her. I, I think he loved her like a close friend. That's right. I don't That's think right. he loved her as a romantic partner. I agree. I agree. And then he ended up with this new girl, whatever. But I have a question. Yeah. Remzo, Mary Shag Kill, Federal Reserve, Mainstream Media. Chinese bioweapons program? Uh, Kill the Fed, uh, shag the mainstream media, marry the Chinese bioweapons program. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I stand by that. (laughs) Okay. Raylene, prepare for landing. Roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Remzo W. Martinez. Give us your dot com, sir. Find me at rwmartinez.com and at Hey Remso on all social media platforms. Rock and roll. So, Raylene, if people give sure. us some money, what do they get? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. If you go to supportblastop.com, you can give us a dollar and you can hear the after party and only $2 a show and you get the all nighter too. Bam, and what are we going to talk about on the all-nighter, Remzo? <laughs> I think we're going to talk about an audio book or two. I don't know. Ah, bam, bam. Anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket. Remzo, thank you so much for being here on the show, brother. That was awesome. I, I, there is nobody else I would rather talk about eating dolphins with than you and me. <laughs> I, I say, <laughs> bald eagles, dolphins, chimpanzees. I don't, I don't care. I'll eat them. Eagles eat my chickens. I want to take those eagles down. Right. And it's a circle of life, man. Back. It's a circle of life. Anyways, that's Johnny Rocket. Always launching ideas. We'll see you next week. Rock and roll. Minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, minus one. Come on, people. Get on the blast off. A blast off. Yes, we're on a trip on a rocket ship. Come on, folks. Me. 
on, people. Get on down! 